Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Nikki May and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires Rue Cambon. Nikki May burst on the literary scene with her fabulous debut, Wahala. Born in its author's mind over the course of a long lunch, the book follows three old university friends, Ronke, Simi and Boo, all of them British, but with strong family ties to Nigeria. Now in their 30s, they are in the business of living, working out careers, family life, their love lives, and all seems to be going pretty well, until Simi's childhood companion, Isabel, shows up. Glamorous, wealthy, forceful. Soon the dynamic between the old friends begins to change, and with moving precision and deep warmth, Nikki May charts the shifts in her characters' relationships. Nikki May understands deeply where her characters come from. She was born in Bristol and raised in Lagos. Like Simi, she dropped out of medical school at 20. We'll discuss that, I'm sure. Moving to London, she began a career in advertising and ran a successful agency. But after 20 years, she'd had enough and settled down in Dorset. She thought the peace and quiet of the countryside would make writing easy, but it didn't. A blank page is incredibly frightening. It takes a huge leap of faith to get started, she said, at the time of the book's publication. But she got there in the end, I'm glad to say, and her debut is now being turned into a major drama for the BBC. She also won the Comedy Women in Print New Voice Prize in 2023. Kirkus Reviews called Wahala a fascinating look at the dark side of female friendship. Writing for National Public Radio, Carol Bell offered high praise. May is a masterful chronicler of black upper-middle-class life and ennui in Britain, she wrote. Wahala is both great fun and extremely smart in how it captures some of the central issues in modern city living. Women's evolving roles in home and work, interracial relationships and multicultural identity, the current of competition that runs through so many friendships and daily interactions, and, most of all, how easily intimacy can morph into enmity. I'm so delighted to be talking to you today, Nikki. Welcome. Thank you, Erica. It's lovely to be here. You've made me want to read my own book. That's good. That was the point. <laughs> so I'm going to start by asking you about your vocation as a writer. That's how we always begin here at the Rendezvous Littéraire. So tell me a bit about your beginnings, about your childhood. When did you start writing? And, and maybe how did the move from Britain to Lagos affect the beginnings of your artistic life? So I got into fiction writing very late. I started writing Wahala when I was 53 and it didn't get published till I was 57. I've always loved writing, but it was something I did in secret. I grew up in a household. My dad was a doctor. And although my mum was artistic, 
art was sort of seen as something frivolous and fun and not important. And I was going to be a doctor before I was able to speak. It was just what I was going to do. I did read a lot, though. I've read voraciously. In Nigeria, fiction was hard to come by. The one big bookshop only sold academia. So you read what you could find, which often turned out to be age inappropriate, which I loved. But I read lots of Agatha Christie's. And looking back now, I, I think Agatha taught me how to write. She's the master of plot and of structure. So although I didn't know it, I think by osmosis, I was discovering how important those things are and loved reading. When I finally dropped out of medical school, it took me three years, even though I knew from week one that I would make the most terrible doctor. It was kind of go back to school or you're on your own. I picked the on your own option and ran away to join the circus. An advertising agency in London was as close as I got. And I loved it. Creativity was celebrated, which for me was so novel and just wonderful. So I started temping there and then got a job and then that was it. That was my career. At first I was a suit. So although I wasn't writing creative stuff, writing pitches and briefs is still a really good way of honing your craft and learning how to construct sentences and be succinct. And I think I found a blank page really scary. So it took a very, very long time to take that leap of faith. And the only thing that made me do it was to think of it as work. It was write yourself a brief, pretend it's a job, which in actual fact it is. Write the sort of book you want to read that happens to have people like you in it. So I always knew it would have mixed race people. I always knew it would explore those things about belonging and not belonging. And I always knew it would have lots and lots of drama because that's the stuff I like reading. Thinking about how our listeners consider creativity. I just come back for a moment to that choice to drop out of medical school. And you've said your father was a doctor. One thing that writing really requires is tough mindedness. You do just have to sit down day after day. I wonder how that choice reverberated with your family. It must have been a hard thing to say, I'm going to do this and then stick to it. It was exceptionally hard. And to be perfectly honest, I was estranged from my family for a couple of years after dropping out. My father was, I think it, it almost broke him. It was the shock of it. And to be perfectly honest, I lived with a lot of shame and guilt for a long time. Even when I was MD of a top 10 agency, I still felt like a failure because to be Nigerian and not have a degree is just to be nothing. So it took a very, very long time to overcome those feelings. And and I think in some ways that's why it took so long to be able to write Wahala because writing requires a huge amount of confidence and most writers I know are plagued by self-doubt so it's always this struggle to drop the anxiety and actually do it and I, I always say Wahala was an overnight success that took 58 years because that's how it feels like for me there's nowhere I could have done this any earlier so people say well, don't you wish you started writing a lot earlier and I don't think I could have. Things happen when they need to happen. That's what I exactly. have always believed. You mentioned Agatha Christie, mistress of plot. Are there other writers who have inspired you? I know I've heard you talk about Big Little Lies, the novel by Liana Moriarty, and also I think Emily St. John Mandel, Station Eleven. What other books have inspired you and, and led you along your path? 
So I love Emily St. John Mandel. I read everything but Station Eleven. I just think it's such a wonderful book and how she turns this awful land into this hopeful landscape is just glorious. But I, I read Mick Heron. I love his work. Jackson Lamb is this amazing character. To me, very Poirot-like. He arrives on the page fully formed and although he's terribly obnoxious, you're really rooting for him. I love Fred Vargas. The three evangelists will live with me forever and I think I'll definitely reread them. I love Kate Atkinson, especially Jackson Brody. Um, and Nigerian writers, I love Chimamanda, but then again, who doesn't? And I adore Ayobami Adebayo. She's just been book along listed for her second book. And I had the joy of interviewing her when that came out. So love her. Sue Grafton. Sherry Lapina. I read loads and loads of books and I read loads of genres. The only thing I can't do is fantasy, which disgusts my husband because he's a huge fantasy lover. But much as I try, it's one genre I just can't get into. I think my book of the year was um, The Trees by Percival Everett. It is wonderful. It's, he's a genius. He's made a book about lynching in the Deep South, laugh out loud funny. And honestly, I'm now exploring his back catalogue. I love it when I find a writer who's prolific, says it means I can go and binge everything they've written. Sounds like you're a very voracious and encyclopedic reader. You mentioned... Chimamanda, of course. Um, what did exploring British Nigerian identity mean to you? As you've said, all the characters are mixed race with white mothers and Nigerian fathers. What did it mean to you to represent these lives in fiction? It was something I really wanted to do because I do think a lot of books about black people are based on trauma and we're not a monolith. It's not a universal experience. I think that being mixed race is sometimes exceptionally difficult and sometimes wonderful. And again, I think it's something that hasn't been explored fully. And this whole concept of code switching, which some people think is a terrible thing, but to me is just a way of life, a way of surviving. And I, it's not something I do intentionally. It just happens. If you transport me from here to a Nigerian restaurant, my voice will change. It will become very loud for starters. But but my diction will change and the things I talk about will change. And the same way if you put me into a, a meeting room with clients, I change. So I, I found this whole code switching so interesting and something worth exploring. But the other thing I wanted to look, look at is how three people, well, four, with the same racial makeup can feel so differently about culture and what constitutes home. And one thing that I, is really important to me is melanin is not a character trait. So I also wanted to show that they're just women. They're just striving. They're just the same as you and the same as me. And they have exactly the same issues. It's just sometimes if you refract it through a biracial lens, it gets slightly more complicated because they're different pulls on how you behave and how you shouldn't. I'm Even since the book's come out, I've been accused of being too black or too white or not being black enough or not being white enough. And I think for a mixed race person, that is just everyday life. And it's something you have to navigate and something you have to deal with and something you mustn't let derail you. So these were all sort of in the melting pot. And I didn't want to write a book about issues. I, I wanted to write an entertaining book. But obviously, if you bump into these issues, well, that's just life. And they're just woven through the fabric of the book so wonderfully. And it is a marvellously entertaining book. 
Tell us about the publication process for Wahala. I know it was a hotly anticipated novel. How did you get an agent and get it published? I always wondered why publishing thinks debuts are so important, because to me it's a bit weird. You wouldn't choose a surgeon who's never worked before. You'd want one with loads and loads of experience. So I always found this debut thing very strange. And it's only recently I've understood that it's the only book you'll write that you're genuinely writing for yourself. You're kind of writing into a void. Yes, you hope you'll get published. Yes, you want to get published, but you don't have any confidence that you will. And it was when I won an amateur prize for the first three chapters of Wahala and the judge was an agent and said, send me the book, that I kind of got my act together and actually finished it and did some editing. So then we went on submission. I was really naive. I didn't even know imprints existed. So I thought the agent would just send it to five publishers. But no, it went on a really wide submission. And after an overnight preempt, went to auction in the UK, auction in the States. It was wonderful. Um, Felt very strange, felt very disassociative, especially when it sold to TV. And then the thing about publishing is it is slow, slow, slow until it's go, go, go. So it's it's a real whirlwind and a real roller coaster. But eventually the book came out in January 2022. It's a huge experience. And again, I'm glad I'm not very young because I think I would have struggled to cope with it. It makes you very introspective. You overly focus on yourself and become a bit obsessive. And I'm not sure that's very healthy. So it's I'm quite glad that now I can sort of think of being an author as a hat I put on and happily take off and go back to being me. Excellent. Well, I think it's time now to hear a few pages of Wahala. So I'm reading from the opening of my book, it's a Ronkare chapter. Pounded yam in egosi, eba with okra, no, it had to be pounded yam, but maybe with eforiro. Ronke ran through the menu in her head as she walked up the hill to book her. She knew it by heart, but that didn't make choosing any easier. As usual, she wanted it all. And as usual, she was running late. She stopped at the cash point anyway and withdrew a hundred pounds. The girls teased her, told her it was an urban myth, but ever since Ronke had heard the story about Simi's cousin's friend getting her card cloned at Booker, she'd paid in cash. Ronke had been looking forward to their Niger lunch all week, and not just because of the food. For the first time in ages, when Simi asked, so, what's new? The answer wouldn't be, nothing. She hustled past the Sainsbury's local, the Turkish grocery and the Thai nail bar. The Nigerian flag outside Booker was looking a little tatty, frayed at the edges. The green was still vibrant, but the white was a dirty beige. Ronke studied her reflection in the shiny mirrored door, yanked at her hair to fluff up some of the curls, patterned to flatten some down. As good as it gets. At least once a day, someone said to her, I wish I had curly hair, but Ronke knew better. Curls meant frizz, knots and chaos. She pushed open the door and stepped out of suburban London and into downtown Lagos. The smell hit her first. Smoky burned palm oil, fried peppers and musty stockfish. Next came the noise. Fella Kuti blared out of the speakers, struggling to compete with the group of three men at a corner table, talking over each other. And because this was effectively Nigeria, their voices were louder, accents stronger, gesticulations wilder. The waiter looked up with a scowl. 
As Ronke turned to shut the door, she knew his eyes would linger on her arse. It felt like home. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nikki. I want to talk to you now about the business of writing. I've heard a rumour that as you were starting Wahala, your husband booked you onto an online course, frankly titled Starting to Write Your Novel. Why was that important to you? I think it was that confidence and self-belief thing. It's You have to take this leap of faith when you write and I needed something to say, you can do this. So I did start writing the first scene at that lunch. And I've read so many books in my life that you think, how hard can this be? But turns out it is really hard. A blank piece of paper is scary. And a book is a big thing. So my husband, Peter, booked me on this course. It was a six-week course. It was online. It was easy to do. And it was brilliant for me. I met friends on that course that are still friends today. And I think one thing that really helps with writing is having writing buddies, people who are on your side, who say you can do it, who who make it important, who make you believe that you have got something to say. It's almost a way of bigging yourself up to be able to do this, of giving yourself the freedom to do it. So that really helped. And at the end of six weeks, I had a synopsis. I had a structure. I'd learnt about point of view. I'd learnt about tensed. So Ronkebu and Simi were strutting around my head, demanding to be seen. And the first draft poured out of me. Tell us what the title means and how that idea comes into the book. Wahala means trouble. In West Africa and in Nigeria, you hear this 10 times a day. And it's always said with a sigh or a moan or the shake of the head. We have probably 500 different languages in Nigeria. So pidgin is like the lingua franca that everybody speaks. And I love the sound of this word. And I realised what my book needed was wahala. It needed trouble. So it was kind of throwing it into the book. So it's one of the loveliest things for me that a word that means so so much to me is actually on the cover of my book. Tell us a little bit about the, that process of redrafting, because this conversation is about process. So you had this idea for introducing trouble. What did that mean practically to the changes that you made as you developed the book? Practically, you print it out, it takes up loads of paper, you read it back and you think, oh my God, I've just wasted so much time and so much paper because this is awful. And you put it away. And in my case, I put it away for about six months. I'd made the mistake of telling a few friends and family that I was writing a book. So every time I saw them, they'd be, what's happening with that book of yours? So I couldn't pretend it didn't exist. And eventually, and I do think giving yourself space in editing is a really good thing, sort of moving away from your book, reading other things, just allows your brain to work in a slightly different way. So eventually I dug it out and we, and I say we because my husband, we've worked together, he's an art director, I was copywriter, so we kind of worked as a team. So I get all the credit, but he does half the work. So we unpicked it and it's literally unpicking, it's pu- it's pulling it apart and then weaving it together and sewing threads that the reader doesn't know are being so- sewn but will 
will get unpicked in the right way at the right time. It's hard work, but it's such good fun. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle, a really difficult jigsaw puzzle. And sometimes I couldn't see the wood for the trees. And other times I was so obsessed with the wood that I forgot about the individual trees. And it always makes me laugh because when you're agent sees the book they call it the first draft you're like no this is draft 10 or 11 or 12 and funnily enough whenever I read from Wahala I'm still editing there's always a sentence I would reconstruct or a word I would change so I think at some point you have to say it's good enough and let it go. It sounds like this leads to my next question I was going to ask who your first reader was but it sounds like it's Peter your husband. It is. Peter is my head of plot, my co-pilot and my first reader. And after that, I don't actually have many beta readers. I'm, I have three friends who see it, but they see it at the same time it goes to my editor. I, I don't believe in vanilla, so I actually don't mind too much if some people hate my work. I think it's fine, you know, because we can't all love the same thing. And to be honest, feeling something is good. So even if what you feel is absolute hatred, it's still a feeling. I'm quite happy I made you feel that. Ronke, Simi and Boo are women with active and in many ways very privileged lives. But they also face racism colorism, exoticization. How did you balance showing these aspects of your story? You wanted to write an entertaining story, as you say, but as you've mentioned, these elements come in. How did you sort of keep the balance right for you? I think pretty much the same way I keep the balance in my actual life. If every time something happened to upset me, I got terribly angry, I would spend my life furious and it really would do me no good. So Ronke being mistaken for being the assistant when really she's the dentist, that happened to me all the time. I'd go into a meeting with my account handler. I'm the managing director. The client would reach to shake his hand and assume I was there to take notes. I've got a very good friend who's a, one of the top oncologists and she is continually seen in the lifts and assumed to be a cleaner. It just, it's part of the landscape of your life. You just get on with it. It happens to all women. It happens to brown women a little bit more often. But what I wanted was to have it in the book the same way I feel it is in my actual life. It's there. You can't do anything about it. And I actually didn't try to solve it. I think one of the things I love about my book characters is they're not remotely perfect so they are spiky and you know black people can have isms too because we're just like every other person so to me it was just sort of showing that we're more the same than anybody else and I what I wanted was for people to see my women as just women and so these issues are sort of hopefully making people think but not getting in the way of the story if that makes any sense. Yes it absolutely does. I was going to ask you what the hardest thing was about writing the book. I, I wonder if it might have been that unpicking, because I also then wanted to ask you, was the hardest thing what you most enjoyed? And then whether you had any tips, advice for aspiring writers from what you've learned in the process. I think the hardest thing is suspending disbelief as a writer. I have to get into that place where I feel I can inhabit these characters. It's almost 
it's almost shedding all this self-doubt. And every day when I sit down to write, I have to go through that process anew and sit there and big, almost psych myself up. I find writing very anxious making. I find it exceptionally stressful. And I find my first 500 words every day are complete bilge because I haven't suspended disbelief enough to actually do this. So I think that's quite hard. You sort of have to really let go every single time you sit down to write. I also find you need a lot of life to be able to write. So I need to read a lot. I need to watch a lot of telly. I need to talk to people. I need to socialise. I, I need to engage with the world in order to feel that I've got something to say. So all the time I spend wasting is not being wasted, I tell myself. It's all part of feeding that creativity. And that's a good piece of advice, is to make sure that your creativity is is fed by life. That's what I feel too. And I think the other piece of advice is to keep going. And on this course I did, which is nearly five years ago now, some of the people on that course are still crafting their first three chapters. And I think it's a mistake you can make that you don't press on, you try and make everything perfect. It's never perfect. Somebody much cleverer than me said, you're telling yourself the story. And until you know the story, you can't tell it to anyone else. I also find that until I've got to the end of the first draft, I don't actually know my characters. So writing it helps me get to know them, which means I can tell it better. I want to ask you now about the reception of this wonderful book. I wonder what response you got from readers and maybe also perhaps from your family. We were talking about your family before. Shock, I think. I remember very well my dad saying, where I knew you should be a writer. And you think, no, you didn't. You, you, you nearly disowned me when I dropped out of medical school. And my family hadn't actually read the book until I'd got my book deal. So I think there was a bit of shock. I think there was a lot of surprise, but a lot of joy. For me, the best part of my being published was my Lagos book tour. I came out in COVID, so I didn't have much um, face-to-face stuff in the UK. But I went to Lagos three months later and the reception was just joyous. Nigerians love celebrating success. They love one of their own to succeed and I was just thrilled that they saw me as one of their own and they celebrated it and it was also really nice to see how much Lagos has changed and how now there's lots of bookshops not selling academia and lots of book groups and lots of young people absolutely obsessed with reading and obsessed with creativity and my, it coincided with my dad's 86th birthday and he did this huge party we call it an Owambe and he bought all of his guests a copy of Wahala and I made sure he bought them full price from the publisher so it was just this joyous joyous occasion and um, in the UK The reception's been great. I've been blown away by it. But as I said, I think you can get a bit too self-obsessed and hang on to every word. You worry about the one reviewer who is reading something into the story that you didn't put there, or even worse, is assuming that if your characters behave like this, then you must be like that. So I think you need to detach yourself and try... It's hard, but just try to remember you are not your book. You are still you. You've also had praise from writers like Paula Hawkins, who wrote Girl on the Train, Emma Stonex, who wrote the wonderful book The Lamplighters, many other authors. As a debut author, what does praise from your fellow established authors mean to you? 
It's incredible. It's it's pinch me time. I mean, meeting your heroes is amazing. And I've now had the privilege of meeting people I respect. The one thing I will say is that I'm amazed at how lovely and supportive other writers are. It's very, very different to the advertising world. And I would say writers are possibly the nicest thing about being an author. So it's wonderful. That's marvellous. Is there a particular impact that you hope Wahala will have? What do you think fiction can achieve for people in their lives? I wrote it to entertain. I wanted to have a good page, a book that would make you turn the pages and would entertain you and would make you gasp, would make you laugh, would make you cry, ideally. But I guess if there was one takeout that I wanted people to take from it that was sort of underneath the layers is that we're just like everybody else and that colour is really not a differentiator. That to me is the most important message. So I think everything I write, that will be the sort of message, we're the same as you, honest. And it is amazing that that has to be said or demonstrated, but you do it in a really beautiful, entertaining, remarkable way. Before we finish, we always have a sequence of questions, which we ask all of our authors. So I'm going to ask you these questions now. The first one is, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? How nice other authors are. This honestly shocked me. They are genuinely supportive. It's a lift you up industry rather than a pull you down one. And that has been brilliant to know. What would people be surprised to learn about you? I can fold a fitted sheet perfectly. Give me a fitted sheet. I have a system, hands in corners, turny, foldy, and it ends up looking absolutely beautiful flat. Nobody is as impressed as, at this as I think they should be. I show my friends every time they visit, but for me, it will be one of my greatest achievements. I'll tell you, I'm impressed. <laughs> what is your idea of perfect happiness other than a perfectly folded sheet. That easy. I'm walking on a beach with Peter and my two dogs, Fella and Lola. It's a nice day, not too hot, not too windy. The beach is soft and sandy and we're walking towards a seafood restaurant and at the end there's an ice-cold bottle of Picpoul de Pinay and they're going to open it as I walk in the door. I'm, I'm happy already just thinking about it. That's lovely. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity, however they want to do that? I would say take the leap. I would say do it for yourself, not for anybody else. Don't worry about reception. It's a debut, whether it's a debut book or a debut sculpture. Just do it for yourself. Do it into the void for you and get to the end. Don't give up. Get to the end. How would you like to be remembered as a writer? This is surprisingly a really easy question for me. I want to be remembered as a woman who wrote books. Not black books, not brown books, not mixed race books, just books. If you could add good in front of books, even better. I think we can add good in front of books. I vote that we do that. And then finally, what would you like your second novel to look like? Do you have an idea where you're going? How far are you along? I'm nearly at copy edit, so really far along and love my characters, love my story. I describe it as a mashup of beaches and Mansfield Park and 
it's got a mixed race person is because of course it does and it's actually some of it is set in the house I grew up it's about love it's about grief it's about belonging it's about what constitutes home and I guess at its heart it's asking whether love is the difference between surviving and thriving. That's beautiful. Well, I can't wait to read your next book, Nikki May. And I will finish just by thanking you so very much for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we have a chance to talk again soon. Can't wait for that next book. Thank you, Erica. I have loved every minute of this. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!